want to go ahead and um, open your Bibles up to Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm getting set up here. If you're new with us, or hope that's not for the next song. Oh, it is. Okay. If you're new with us, or uh, maybe just tuning in online, and you didn't hear Brian earlier, and not used to seeing me, I'm John Bernard, our assistant youth pastor. Uh, Brian last week said that we'd have a guest speaker, so I thought that I would shave and try to look a little more like a guest. And actually... You know, maybe you've seen some of those like viral videos online where a dad shaves and his kids have never seen him without a beard before and like the kids cry. Well, I didn't want to make our kids cry, but the other parent in the house might have, uh, or I don't know what she was expecting to happen. So she's like, hey, if you're going to shave, uh, make sure we can film it. Like text me before you come up. So I get a shower and I'm in my bathrobe coming up and I text Katie and I'm like, all right, you know, and she's like, all right, I really want to get Daisy's reaction. Our daughter's too over there. And, you know, I didn't have some big, epic lumberjack beard, so I really didn't expect, like, you know, that she'd be shocked or whatever. And I go over, and she has, like, no response. Eventually, she says, you look like Captain America, Daddy. And I was like, wow, that's, that's a pretty nice compliment. I mean, I don't think I really look like Chris Evans that much, but I, I, I'll take it. And then uh, I was like, you know, I mean, kids aren't going to lie to me, right? And then my son, meanwhile, just laughed hysterically for 60 straight seconds. And I was like, I don't really know how to take this. Like, I should call my mom and let her tell me that he's laughing with me, not at me. You know, don't know what to take out of my four-year-old. Just, I mean, hysterically laughing. A little moment of pastoral transparency. Last week, um, when Brian said there was going to be a guest speaker. Sorry, I'm trying to get this on right uh, I am really good at having mental dates. Like, if you say, hey, let's get lunch, I'm like, all right, March 12th, 4 or 12 o'clock, and I just remember it. I mean, I, I do write down, we have a computer calendar for the staff and all that, but I'm pretty good at remembering it. But in between, I'll forget sometimes. So last week when Brian was saying there was going to be a guest speaker, I was like, oh, who, is there a missionary? And he's like, John Bernard. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So I, 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 I did know it. I, I was working on the sermon, so this wasn't prepared all yesterday or anything, so don't worry about that. Um, but let's go ahead and pray. As that last song said, we can call upon his name, so let's call upon the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive in Nehemiah 1. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to our hearts, that you would open your word, give us spiritually open eyes and ears to see and hear you. Lord, we ask you to soften our hearts, make us the soft soil. Lord, we thank you that as you promise, your word doesn't return empty. It accomplishes what you want it to do. And Lord, we ask that it graciously and mercifully bring us closer to you so that we would look more like your son, that we would depend more on your son, Jesus. And we be led by your Holy Spirit. Lord, lead me as I open your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 1. I want to dive right in. If you're not too familiar with the book of Nehemiah, I haven't read it, I haven't read it in a long time, I, I will kind of 
explain some, some stuff as we go along to give you a little bit more of the context, but so that we don't uh, meander along too far, I want to just dive in and read chapter 1 first. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. During the month of Chislev in the, tw- in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived that exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. So Nehemiah, if you don't know, is a Jewish man living in a Persian in the empire of Persia in the 400s B.C., He gets news from Hananiah, his brother, that Jerusalem, the crown jewel, the the old capital city of Israel, which has already fallen by this point. Things have been destroyed. They've been overtaken by another country. I'll get to that in a minute. And they're living in exile. And Nehemiah gets bad news. He gets the news that things are falling apart. Gates have have been burned. The the, the wall has has fallen. There was a big wall all around their capital city of Jerusalem. And that is in disarray. It's in rubble. Verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. Something struck me this week when I was reading this, and also when I read the Psalms, is the kind of boldness that they pray with. I mean, Nehemiah is saying, hey, God, can you listen? I mean, a little more respectfully than that, but he's saying, God, give me an open ear. Let your eyes be open. I mean, this guy has just gotten terrible news. And, you know, the Psalms, King David's often saying, like, God, are you listening? God, are you here? God, do you see what I'm going through? And a lot of times our prayers are like, God, would you, if you just do this, and, you know, you go to a prayer meeting, and someone's like, hey, can you pray for Aunt Sally? If you could just help Aunt Sally, if you, I mean, if you want to, you know. Uh, sometimes the ways we approach prayer aren't with that same sort of bold approaching of the throne. And obviously we want to go to God with reverence, but I'm encouraged by like, man, God, this is really bad. This is awful. And, and, and are you listening to, to my prayer? I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. Verse 7. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances that you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. So again, he's saying, God, re- remember what you told us. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You've redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today. Grant him compassion in the presence of this man. 
At, that, at the time, I was the king's cupbearer. So I'll explain that in a minute. But what's going on with Nehemiah is he's experiencing a flashbulb memory, I would imagine. He gets terrible news, probably some of the worst news he gets in his lifetime. Probably a day he'll never forget. Most of us in, this, in here, and especially if you're at least around my age or older, have had some flashbulb memories. The one I think of specifically, I only need two numbers to bring vivid images to your mind, and all I have to say is 9 and 11. And if you're at least of a certain age, I don't need to say September 11, 2001. I don't need to give you any details. I don't obviously need to say, hey, you remember what happened that day? Obviously, just me saying that probably brings back a good bit of what happened on that day. I was only in fifth grade, so if you were older than that, you probably have more distinct memories than, than I do. But I'm in fifth grade, and they don't tell us, or they didn't tell us in the fifth grade what was going on, so I didn't really know what was going on and, you know, until later that day. But I'm in fifth grade. It's the last year you get recess at the school district I was in, so you know, every day counts. You know, you're counting how many days you have left. Like outdoor recess? Yep. I only have 120 days left. You, know, you can't take this away from me. But obviously, they're trying to keep us protected, and they don't know what all is happening that day. So that they, I was told by my teacher, as I recall, that we couldn't go outside because the bees were too bad. And we had one of those wooden playgrounds with, like, the, the, you know, the turrets and castle kind of look to it. And it was a haven for bees. People got stung, you know, like, in the eyes every day. Uh, that's going to be my thing. Like, instead of, like, I had to go up, to, uh, up the hill both ways of school, I'm going to tell my kids I got stung in the eyes every day at recess. So you enjoy whatever you have. Um, but for me, it was like, you know, I, obviously I didn't have any idea what was on the teacher's mind, you know, but I did think that's a little weird. I mean, there's just bees every day. So I get on the bus and our, it's one of those things where middle schoolers also rode that bus or sixth and seventh graders. There's a seventh grader I knew and he's talking about it and I don't know how much he understands of what's going on, but by the time it's given to him, and then I overhear it, a little bit of a game of telephone, and I have no idea quite the scope of what's happening. I had thought it was like a smaller, not commercial plane, and like an American had maybe stolen a plane and flied it in a building. Obviously, I knew it was bad, and I knew that something tragic had happened, but I had no idea like what was happening to our country that morning until I got home. So just really, until I got home, didn't really have any kind of sense of, of what all had happened. So I get home, and, and my mom's telling me, and then I'm finally, like, realizing, oh, like, this is a national crisis. This is a terrorist attack. You know, I'm realizing what's happening. The, the news is on. I'm seeing the images for the first time. You know, a, a lot of people have been seeing them for hours at that point, but the first time I saw them, and if your house was like mine, you probably for the next several days had the news stations on. And, and, you know, I just remember being glued to that and everyone's trying to process and what is this going to mean? What's going to happen? So I bring up that unfortunate day because it's probably the only way I can get you kind of in the mindset of what was happening for them. One quote I heard this week is, the Bible is for us, but not immediately about us. So a lot of times we, rem- we have to remember that we- we're going back in time, we're going back in a culture. So obviously, if you know a little bit about the Bible, you probably know Jerusalem's a big deal. But for them, it wasn't just like a nationally big deal, like it was the capital of the old country that, that he's from. But it's theologically important. It's spiritually important. To, to hear that Jerusalem is in disarray is a big deal. 
The temple is there, and that's where God's presence dwells. That's where once a year a man named the high priest sacrifices on the Day of Atonement to pay for the sins of the people because Jesus hasn't been born yet. So it's like it's it's a national sort of pride. It is religious, theological, spiritual, all rolled into one in a way that we probably can't quite understand, but it is a moment for him. So in a little bit of history before we get into chapter 2, because if you don't understand what exile is in the Old Testament, you won't understand the Old Testament. Quick little history lesson is there's King Saul, King David, King Solomon, three kings of the nation of Israel. After that, they fell apart, just as they were told they would. Repeatedly, prophets are telling them, listen, we're turning to false gods, we're making idols. You know, the thing about an idol is it's a little thing you make in whatever image you want. You can make a gold monkey, put it on the shelf, and then you get to make the rules of the gold monkey religion. You don't have to follow what the one true God is if you make the God. So they turn to idols, they start selling each other into slavery, they start neglecting widows and orphans and poor people and foreigners that live among them. Uh, They turn away from so much of what God called them to be. If you read through the prophets, that's what's happening time and time again. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is the last one telling them, exile is coming. So what happens is in 700, I know you wanted to hear dates today, in 722 B.C., the northern part of the kingdom, which had split after Solomon died, they split the country in half. A lot of drama there. 722 B.C., Assyria takes over the northern half, which was called Israel. 586 B.C., Babylon takes over the southern half. And a little bit before that, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon shows up, lays siege, lays, tries to lay waste to Jerusalem. And he takes the best and the brightest. He takes Daniel. He takes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's why you have the book of Daniel. Daniel's taken away from Israel, raised up in Babylon. And you're like, why why do I need to know this? Because the culture is important. So in Babylon, you were raised, especially if you were Daniel, if you read that book, he was raised to to know their way of life. And it's kind of like, listen, if we can just bring some of your people back with us for a little bit, we can show them how great our way of life is. And then we'll go and we'll get more of your people and we'll, we'll start pulling them in. So they do that. They leave some people in, in Israel just because if you're making an empire, you've got to leave people in different places. And eventually, 538 B.C., another nation, Persia, shows up, wipes out Babylon to some degree, and they take over. Throughout the Old Testament, just take over, take over, take over. So King Cyrus is in charge, and he wants to do things a little bit differently. Instead of Babylonian way of, like, we're going to pull you in and show you how great our life is, there's some extent of, like, all right, we'll let you have your God We'll let you pray to who you want to pray to. In fact, if you could just pray for me as the king of Persia, he'll probably help me, probably have your God from judging me. So, so as long as it serves Persia, I guess it's okay. So in the book of Ezra, which is right before Nehemiah, and actually in Jewish history for hundreds of years, it, this was one book for a long, a long time. It was considered Ezra and Nehemiah was together as one book until after Jesus, well after Jesus dies. And in the book of Ezra, God stirs up a man named Zerubbabel, who Cyrus lets go back to Israel to rebuild the temple. So the temple was destroyed when they were taken over, but the temple that Nehemiah mentions, that's a new temple. It's the temple that's going to last until 70 AD. So it's the temple Jesus will see in his lifetime. Then God stirs up a man named Ezra, who comes back in the book of Ezra. And his focus is on reform, getting us back to following God's way. 
Finally, we get to Nehemiah. In the middle of the 400s BC, he's stirred up about the news of the wall. So he goes to his Persian king. He's the cupbearer. This is a big, important job. Probably not a job you would like to have because you have to watch the, you can picture a wine chalice and you got to get the king his wine and you got to make sure it gets poured in there and make sure no one poisons it or does anything to it and you got to get it to him. Maybe sometimes you have to taste test it. I don't know how much turnover there was in that job, but probably a decent bit. And so it's an important job because you're an incredibly trusted man. So you get to be close to the king. But you might know just from history or the book of Esther, uh, talking to the king is a big deal. Asking them is anything big out of the ordinary is a big deal. Because kings throughout history can be temperamental. And if they don't like you, they can kill you. So he's, he's praying. And that's why the end of chapter 1 said, Grant, um, give me success today. Grant him, meaning the king, compassion. Now chapter 2. During the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, he's the new king of Persia, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Remember, if the guy can kill you any day that you go to work, you're probably on your A game. You're probably nice every day. But clearly he's so grieved that the king knows that. And he said, well, why are you sad? Clearly you're heartbroken. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of, heaven, of the heavens and answered the king. We don't know what that prayer was like. It might have been a quick moment, like in a quick second, without even closing his eyes, God help me. It might have been while the king's talking, but in some way he's saying some kind of quick prayers and he's just saying, God, like, let me live, first of all, and let him hear my question, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah, that's the southern kingdom, what's left of, of Israel, and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a, de a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. We're going to skip down to verse 11 just for time, but there's a couple other verses in between. He's asking him for other resources. So not only to say, hey, I need a years long, like decade or more long leave of absence from my job, but I also want you to pay for me to fix the country that you took over. A big ask, but he's bold and God is working through him. Verse 11, after I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got, up night, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the shepherd's serpent's well and the dung gate. You don't want to live by the dung gate. Um, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down, its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Remember, if you're hearing this back then, you would know the, the walls, you'd know some of these gates. The New Testament talks about the sheep gate. It's, it's, it's all this big wall around the city of Jerusalem. Verse 14, I went on to the fountain gate in the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. For I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. You ever have a good idea, like you want to fix something in your house and you know who's going to help you? Before you ask them, 
It's one of those moments. Like, I already know who's going to help me. Didn't tell him yet. But. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I was reading in Daniel recently, and towards the end of Daniel, he, he's talking about what's left of Israel. He says the same sort of thing. It's, it's a disgrace. It's not what it once was. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding, and their hands were strengthened to do this good work. So he's had the flashbulb moment. He's had the grief, the sorrow. I mean, it says he spends days fasting and weeping and in a way that we probably can't even quite understand. But, but he, he's weeping over the city that lays in ruins. And, and people have moved back there already in the book of Ezra. And the temple has been rebuilt. It's supposed to not be quite as grand as the original temple. But it's been rebuilt. It's there. God has been doing things to rebuild the, where they live. But there's still clearly big problems. And it would have been a lot easier to probably just stay in Persia and be the cupbearer and hope you never get poisoned by a drink. And, you know, there's, there's got to be some cushy elements of that job. It probably would have been easier to stay in Persia and for a lot of these people. Because when you go back to Israel to rebuild this wall, there's people that have kind of uh, squatted in the area and don't want this happening. That's why it ended up taking 20 years to rebuild the temple because people that tried to stop it. In fact, it got so hard to rebuild the wall that when they start building it, they have to have some of the people stand guard. So you have one guy behind you laying bricks and you're holding a sword or a sling or whatever and a bow and arrow and you're like, all right, I'm just going to stand here for 12 hours a day and hope no one charges at me. So it, it is a tough job. It, it takes them months. The next chapters, I'm not going to read them, but in like three and four, it's listing names. And it's one of those things that if you're tired, uh, it's one of those chapters you can get, you know, Take what people call a prayer nap, you know, when you, when you fall asleep reading or fall asleep praying. But it's, it's, it's listing, it's like, and this guy helped on the wall, and, and this was, you know, the job he did before. And while I was doing research, I, I didn't even notice, notice this. I, I kind of glazed over a little bit, but uh, one person pointed out that uh, one of the guys that's mentioned is a son of a perfumer. Probably not like grown up skilled bricklayer. He's like, nope, dad's a perfumer. His dad was a perfumer. I'm going to be a perfumer. Uh, but I think it's to show us that like they were bringing anyone, anyone together to fix this. It says priests did it. Nobles did it. Merchants did it. People that probably didn't dirty their hands too often. The son of a perfumer. They, they got together and some of them had to pick up the trowel and lay out bricks and some had to put up the, the timber for the gates and some people had to hold a sword and protect. But what's important is God put a burden on Nehemiah to say, I'm going to be the person to do this. He put a burden on all these people who it probably wasn't their skill. It probably wasn't their normal area giftedness. But God stirred them to respond in a way that I need to step up and do something. In a similar way, we look around us where we live. We don't have a big wall, but we have holes. We have piles of rubble. We all know ways, I don't even need to list them all, but we all know ways that COVID has probably made that worse in many ways, but they were there before. Maybe the problems got bigger and the piles got bigger, but issues like homelessness and addiction and, and broken families and all, and all sorts of struggles like that, they existed before and, and ways are worse now. There are holes 
There are piles of rubble. Not in exactly the same way, but they exist around us. Even our church, as, as, as we try to come out of this season and, and move forward, there's, there's things that need done, things that need fixed. So, so a pile of rubble might not always be this awful sinful issue. It might just need, be something that needs fixed, needs done. And a question for us this morning, is God stirring us in a similar way to say, I'm going to be someone who stands and fixes that gap? And look, for some of these people, they might just be fixing a part of the wall that's close to their house. Maybe the son of the perfumer is like, look, it's going to take me four months to get this four feet done. I'm not very good at this. I've got I to gotta check my work a bunch. The other, Bob has to come over and help me a little bit. I think they were all named Bob. There's a lot of Bobs in the Bible, trust me. Now, you might want to read that part for yourself. I, I might have made that up. But son of the perfumer is trying to work on his four-foot section of the wall, and it's taken him a long time, but he's doing it. And maybe like us, there's areas that for a six-month period or for a time that we're like, look, I'm not a bricklayer, but God's calling me to this. Maybe there's something that you normally wouldn't do. It's not in your giftedness. It's not in your skill set. Maybe it's not a forever thing and not a years-long thing. Maybe it's a shorter thing, but that God might be putting a burden on you even right now to say, I'll step up. And look, I'll be honest, a lot of times when I talk about issues in the in like town around us, community, society in general, and I didn't even get to the biggest issue, which is spiritual issues. People being lost, not knowing Jesus. I think everything else is symptoms of that. Big, awful symptoms that we need to try to help if we can, but a lot of times we can get paralyzed when we talk about physical despair and sin issues and, and the spiritual lostness of people that we love dearly that live close to us. We can get paralyzed because we be like, oh, there, there, there's so many things. I, 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 you know, I have this neighbor and, and their life's in disarray and my neighbors are fine. I'm just giving an example. But, you know, the people that you know and, 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 and you start thinking, well, you know, they need Jesus and, and then they need this fixed and they need this fixed. And it's so easy to become paralyzed. But what if we look at a little chunk of the wall and we pray to God and say, look, I don't know how. I don't even know. There's, there's a bunch of the holes. I don't even know which one I could do. I don't know how I would do it. But where will we step up? Where will we be like Nehemiah and all the others and say, I will step up? And look, it ends up costing Nehemiah a lot. There's people trying to shut the project down. He has to dip into his own resources in a lot of ways to, to provide for people. But Nehemiah didn't just, what I love about him, he didn't just care about physical things. He also cared about emotional, he cared about the spiritual heart level issues. There were, uh, later in the book, I mean the wall's done by like chapter 6 and there's 13 chapters. Later he has to go and he's part of the sort of religious reform that Ezra was working on. He's saying, look, God's allowed us to come back, but we need to actually come back to him spiritually, not just physically. He starts dealing with issues of people who are selling each other into slavery. He, he's, he become, he's the governor of, of Judah at the time, so he has to shut that down. He's worried about people that are marrying pagan people, people that aren't Israelites. And, it's not, and the issue isn't their ethnicity, because it talks somewhere in Nehemiah about people that are allowed from other countries. They give their faith to the one true God, and then they are allowed to live in Israel. But for the people that didn't do that, 
He's saying, you're marrying these people that don't follow God. And he's like, don't, don't you know about Solomon and how he sinned? King Solomon had thousands of wives and, and they weren't all Israelites and, and they led him away from God at points in his life. In fact, Nehemiah in the last chapter gets so upset, it says he starts hitting people and tearing their hair out and telling them about Solomon. Now, not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. Some things are descriptive, meaning it tells you what happens, doesn't mean you had to do it. I don't know the pastoral counseling session if I'm with Nehemiah and I'm like, so you were mad, tell me what you did. Oh, you pulled their hair out, you know. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways in modern society we can't just hit people and pull their hair out no matter how angry we are. So don't know about that part. But what I do appreciate about Nehemiah is he saw there was deeper issues, heart-level sinful issues that needed to be dealt with. In the book of Ezra, when Ezra's dealing with this, there's a, there's a uh, point in time where they spend hours one day they get all the people together and they're standing just listening to the law be proclaimed for hours several hours it takes them to, to read I think the, the whole Torah if I remember correctly and and Ezra's reading it and then there's a time of confession there's a time of saying like wow we've drifted so far from what God has called us to these different problems that I said the prophets talk about they happen over and over and over again even after this until Jesus comes back But just like Nehemiah knew there was deeper heart-level issues, that's what I want to get to today. Philippians, the end of Philippians chapter 1. Paul's talking about living for Christ. He's talking about being a citizen of heaven, living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then we'll pick it up in verse 29 of chapter 1. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. It goes on to talk about Jesus taking his role in heaven, being with God. And being so humble that he leaves heaven to live among us, to live the perfect life, to die the worst humiliating death. And it says, are we going to have that attitude? For yeah, we could have a better life all focused on ourselves, but Jesus had to step down in a way that was humiliating, in a way that was humbling. And Paul's saying, are we willing to do that? So when we talk about stepping into the gaps, when we talk about the holes that are around us, and we look at Philippians and say, do we really care that much? Do we really love so strongly that we are willing to suffer, as Philippians says? Humble ourselves and uh, humble and, and humiliate sometimes go hand in hand. Are we willing to, at a great cost to us, like Nehemiah, like others, leave a certain area, uh, uh, whether actually physically or leave certain things in our life, leave certain privileges as Jesus did for the sake and interest of others? 
See, it's not just about what we physically do, although I think God does, is calling us physically to step up. Step up in, for the holes in, in, our, in our church family, in our fellowship, in the holes around us. As Pastor Brian spoke last week, to even pray and maybe sometimes actually go out and physically step up to the ends of the earth for the sake of other countries that don't know about Jesus. But when I think about the deeper heart issue at play, I, I think of this line from a song from 2013. Uh, it's called uh, Pompeii by Bastille. Song superficially about Pompeii, you know, the famous city that Mount Vesuvius blows up and ash goes all over this Roman city. And people, you know, are kind of wiped out. They don't have time to get out of the city. You know, archaeologists have excavated and you can see like outlines negative space of people that were like holding each other and, and it's this tragic thing that just happened so that kind of captivated this band and they wrote this song and the one line has stuck with me for years oh where do we begin the rubble or our sins i read it again oh where do we begin the rubble or our sins now when this guy wrote the song i don't think he was worried about my sermon in 2021 and it fitting in just right but I do think, so I don't think it's we choose between the piles of rubble or we choose between the sins, but often we don't care about the rubble or the holes or, or the people that need us because of our sin. I don't mean sin necessarily is in what you've actively been doing that you need to give up, but our sinful hearts that are often too focused on us. See, when we don't care enough about the interests of others, it's actually, I think, due to a lack of love or our love not being strong enough, a love that's too weak, a love that's not ready to humble themselves, a love that's not ready to live up to what we're called to in Philippians 1 and 2. Over this last year, I think God has shown me some ways in which my love is too weak. It took our church schedule being thrown through a loop and you know all that kind of sort of things have happened last year for me to realize for I think God to show me some ways in which I didn't always value highly enough fellowship of other believers ways in which I didn't always value it doesn't mean I didn't at all but ways in which my love was too weak my value was too little for fellowship or even the fellowship of you guys of my church Ways in which I didn't love strongly enough. And that's the thing I've had to, to ask God for forgiveness on and to give me more love, more love for you, more love for the community around me. Or I even think of days that serving my, you know, my, my family or kind of uh, doing stuff, you know, it's, it, it's more reluctant. It's not as humble as it should be. They're not seeing the love they, they should. And then I have to ask God, God, give me a stronger love. You know, I, I can get, as far as the church front, sometimes I can get kind of tunnel vision and, you know, I got to get in there and I, I got to get this, the, my stuff done. I, I got to get the, the job done for the day. I want to do well with that. But sometimes there's ways in which I'll slip into focusing on, on the program or, or the service more than the people that the program or the service are for. And that's the thing I'm sorry for. And something God has shown me. Ways in which God has shown me in my life that love is lacking. But I think of John 15 where Jesus says, if we abide in him 
Some translations say remain. You can think of abiding as remaining, dwelling, spending a lot of time, being close to. If we abide in Jesus, he says, we'll bear much fruit, meaning we'll produce, we'll do good works. So when we find ourselves lacking, lacking the, the spirit or the, the willpower, the whatever, to really go out there and step in some holes and fix some walls, we have to ask ourselves, if I don't want to do that, how is my love lacking? If this is reluctant, if this, isn't, if this is just like, oh, I got to go do this, both whether it's things in church or whether it's stuff we do out there, whether it's with our family, whoever we're serving, we have to ask ourselves, how's my love? And when it's lacking, we, we go to God and we have to go, the, the answer is going closer to Jesus, abiding in him and saying, saying Lord, forgive me. Lord, draw me closer. Holy Spirit, grow a greater love in me for people. Grow a greater care and concern. Stir a burden in my heart like he did for Nehemiah, like he did for Ezra, like he did for Zerubbabel, like he does for people throughout Scripture and throughout time. If we get closer, if we're walking with Jesus, he will put burdens on you. And look, sometimes we put them off. Sometimes we handle them pretty imperfectly. Sometimes we're like Jonah and we run off for a while from what we're called to. I know I've done that. But we have to go back to Jesus. One, ask for forgiveness and say, how can I depend on you more this time? How can I step up today and tomorrow? We can't change past. But how do we look forward with Christ and say, I will step up now. Burden me now, Lord. Stir me for something now. Equip me for something now. Call me for something now. And, and again, maybe it's a four-foot section of the wall, but I will step up. See, look, culturally, and there's a lot of wisdom in this. this is a lot, there's a lot of good things in this, but we, we talk more and more about self-care and our boundaries and our me time and all the things we have to do for ourselves. And again, there's, there's wisdom in that, uh, Philippians, what I read, talked about caring for others as you care for yourself. So not saying no to any of that. But I'm afraid that sometimes we've gone so far asking that side of the equation that we don't ever stop and say, well, what about everybody else? What about the least of these? What about the forgotten, the broken, the hurting, the ones lost without Jesus? Because look, there's a lot of ways in which we can keep our lives together. We can be taking care of us, or if you have a family, taking care of your family, doing the right things, paying the bills, getting things taken care of, being well put together, but not humbling ourselves to care about anyone else whatsoever. And if that's the case, then we have to ask ourselves, where is my love? How is my love? I'm looking at my daughter playing with something right now and thinking, with my kids, they're, they're four and two, and, and, and the biggest thing I pray for them is that the Holy Spirit soften their hearts, that they would put their faith in him. And, and I think that's already growing. I think there's love there. But I think with, with small children, they become a certain age, and as they develop, they, they kind of put the faith in for themselves. It's kind of attached with you, and God's working, and um, 
but, but there comes a kind of time where it's like, I got to make my faith my own. It's about me really trusting Jesus. So that, that's my number one prayer for, for my kids all the time. But the other thing I think more of, and more and more my prayer for me as their dad, is how will I stack up my life in such a way? How will I make decisions with my time and my energy and my finances and where we go and who we spend our time with and why we're doing it and, and where we're going? How do they see our lives as a family on mission for God's kingdom? Not so that I can build a legacy that people can remember me, not that I can build a ministry resume, but so that people can move closer to Jesus. And you need to ask yourself the same. It's not just a question for me as a pastor. It's a question for all of us, regardless of age, regardless of giftedness, regardless of past or history. If you're with Jesus, the question is, what kingdom impact will you leave behind? Will you stare at all the holes and all the piles of rubble and say, "Mm, no. Or will you find maybe a tiny one that no one's going to ever remember you fixed? Maybe it's a big one, maybe it's a small one. And you say, ah, it's pretty sloppy, but Lord willing, I'm going to patch it up. I'm going to do something. I'm going to get some people. We're going to do something. I think this has to be a question of our life. Is what kingdom impact? And that means in a church, because that's the, the regular fellowship, the probably most common expression of the kingdom that you'll participate in is your church, your church family that you commit to, but also outside, outside the church, outside the walls, the people that don't know Jesus. For you, or for you and your family, if you have a family, what kingdom impact years down the road will be left behind? Again, not in a way that anyone needs to remember you, but how will you have done something to stand in gaps so that more people will know Jesus? And when you ask yourself that question, you'll find you fail a lot of the times. I do. We go to Jesus. We're going to go to him actually right now if the worship team would come up. But we go to Jesus together for the grace. Trusting that Jesus is the only one who ever perfectly stood in any gap. We're talking about holes and walls and all these metaphors. Well, we have a grand canyon between us and God, a giant chasm that we could never cross. And Jesus perfectly took on the burden as we read in Philippians and said, I will humble myself, stand in the burden in the chasm that is too far, too wide for any human to ever cross to be with God's love, and I will do it for you. And Jesus, thankfully, doesn't ask us to fix the sins of all of humanity for all of time. Whew, we can wipe off the sweat of our brow. You know, if you came in today and you thought you were going to be asked to save humanity, it's not, it's not the, what's put upon you. But I do believe if we're with Jesus, walking with him, he's going to ask things of us. It's going to look different in different seasons. And will we respond? Let's pray.